The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So this morning, we find ourselves just past the halfway point of this Healthy and Free series. It's a 10-week series. We're now on week six. And we're really looking at five core key areas that we believe God wants us to be healthy in. They are faith, fitness, family, finances, and food. Now, if you're in a community group or participating in a group, we've challenged everyone in a group to choose one of these five areas to choose a goal in and walk toward in their area of health. And I've heard great responses about some awesome goals that people are setting for themselves as they begin to overcome different things and march toward health in different areas of their life. I know that our group has been awesome to hear different stories of you guys that have been willing to share your progress. Now in the Sunday mornings, we haven't necessarily been hitting these topics one at a time, talking about how to work out or talking about how to create a budget, things like that. But more so, we've been addressing contributing factors and motivators that allow you to grow and to develop and move toward health and freedom in these specific five areas. And really what a lot of this series is designed around, and a lot of what personal growth is for that matter, is the, the ability to learn how to say no to the right things and the ability to learn how to say yes to the right things. Yes, I will create a budget and learn how to live by it. No, I won't buy a brand new Mercedes tomorrow. Yes, I will eat more vegetables and kale. No, I won't eat at McDonald's every day, right? Learning how to say yes to things and learning how to say no to things. It's a big part of how we develop our faith, and it's a critical part in just the human maturation process. As a parent, you're teaching your children how to say yes to the right things and how to say no to the right things. I mean, what's the first word that a baby, that a child learns to respond to and understand? I mean, sure, it would be great if that word was mama or dada, right? But that's usually not the case. For those of you who have children or have been around children a lot, the first word that they learn to respond to and react to and unfortunately repeat back to you is what word? No. Yes, you've heard it. And it seems like such a negative way to start our children out with the word no as the first word that they, no, they say that back to us. I read of a couple who didn't want their child to grow up to be a negative person, so they figured the way that they would achieve this would be by not using the word no to their child. Can you imagine how well that worked out, right? (laughs) The first couple weeks or months when the child is just drooling on himself and gooing and gawing in baby blankets, they had no problem not using the word no. But once the child went mobile and broke a lamp and a few near catastrophic injuries later, these parents realized the importance of the word no. No matter how much we hate the word no, it's a critical part in learning how to get along in this world. Through it, we learn limits. Boundaries. We have defined the difference between right and wrong, the difference between good and evil, the difference between God's best for us and everything else. And a lot of what preaching is, really, or teaching, 
is learning and teaching how to, pe- how, how to tell people how to say no to the right things, what to say no to. But unfortunately, sometime in the church and in our lives, we never get to the word yes because we're so focused on the word no, and it's so much easier to teach people just say no to these specific things than it is to help them understand the process of what to say yes to. Consequently, throughout the years, a lot of what the church has been known for in our culture has been for what we are against rather than what we are for. I mean, you've known the routine, you've seen it, you've heard it. I think of the past couple years of the different sporting events that I've attended, either the Seahawks or the Mariners or Husky football games. There's always someone out front with the picket signs and the megaphone telling everyone what they believe on a certain subject. You see them on the street corner before. So much of the church's words wind up sounding like, to be a good Christian, you don't drink, you don't party, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't hang out with boys and girls who do, right? And I made that rhyme to be cheesy and to kind of overemphasize it so you remember it. But so much in the church, we're focused on the no and withdrawing from the evil in our culture. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. Don't, don't tell John that I'm saying, say yes to everything. <laughs> Learning to say no is important, but it can be overemphasized. A lot of churches and Christian organizations have often been guilty of being so concerned about a moral purity that they have ignored the command of Christ to go and get your hands dirty in service to broken and hurting people. Avoiding sin doesn't just mean learning how to say no. It also means learning when to say yes. Learning when to say yes. This is what James, Jesus' brother, wrote about as he pens the fourth chapter of his book, which is so eloquently named the book of James. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here for a little while and then is gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Here's the key verse for us this morning, verse 17. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Sin is not just about avoiding evil in our lives. Most people have this concept that as long as they avoid evil, they don't do certain things, then they're a good Christian. But if that were true then our dog Lottie would be the best Christian I know. (laughs) Lottie doesn't do much of anything. In fact, she sleeps probably 90% of every day. And she snores 100% of every day. I don't even know how that's possible, but pugs like to snore all the time. She doesn't have any addictions. She doesn't steal. She doesn't argue with her parents or any of those big sins that we would consider a sin. The closest thing that she may do to sin is coveting her neighbor's food. And she doesn't even commit that also horrible sin of pooping in the house like her sister Bailey does. Now, you probably didn't think you would hear pooping in the house when you came to church this morning, I'm sure. 
But followers of Christ are called to more than just avoiding the evil that's around us. James describes this man who is planning a period of his life, and not only is he planning what he will do, but he's planning where he will go to do it. He also plans his procedure that he will sell and trade and make this money. He planned his profit. Now, what did he do wrong? I mean, the Bible has nothing against planning for the future. The Bible says nothing against making a profit to provide for your family. Those are both great things. But what James highlights, and it's important for us to understand, is the need to turn every day over to God. The need to to turn every moment, every instant, every opportunity over to God. To include Him into the planning for our lives. And respond to His desires for us with how we will spend our time, how we will spend our money, how we will spend our abilities. That God has not simply told us what to avoid. He has also told us and modeled for us through Jesus what we should be doing. And continues to reveal this to us through his Holy Spirit. And we develop a deeper understanding and relationship with him. The reality of the Bible is that God has placed a big emphasis on what we should avoid. Because he loves us, right? A parent that loves their child sets parameters and boundaries for them because they don't want them to get hurt or they don't want them to hurt the people around them. This is what God did with us. I don't read the King James Version of the Bible, but if you did, there are 219, I looked it up, thou shalt nots in the Bible. 219. That's a lot of things that we should not be doing. We have been told that we are not to have other gods, that we're not supposed to make any idols or anything above God. We're not to lie, to steal, to cheat, to covet, to commit adultery, or do any of these other big sins that God asked us not to do. But I find it interesting that when Jesus came to the earth, he spent very little time preaching and teaching on these sins of the flesh and the things that we're not supposed to do. And it's not like Jesus took sin lightly. In fact, that You could look at the Sermon of the Mount and hear Jesus' definition of sin was incredibly strict. Jesus said, You have heard that it is said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who has looked lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. That's pretty strict. Nobody took sin as seriously as Jesus did. But people did not only know what Jesus was against. They knew what he was for because Jesus spent countless hours extending hope and grace and mercy to sinners. Jesus knew how to say yes to the right thing. And maybe a better way to say that is Jesus knew how to say yes to people. It was Jesus who was criticized for eating and drinking with the hated tax collectors. It was Jesus who was detested for hanging out with the lepers and the outcasts of his day. It was Jesus who talked with the women who had a bad reputation and showed them that there's restoration and new life found only in God. It was Jesus who was caring for the insane, the diseased, the desperate of his society. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus did get upset with a specific people group of his time... It was usually the most religious of his day. 
when Jesus preached to the Pharisees, he usually gave it to them pretty good. The Pharisees were the most respectable, and I'm air-quoting, religious people of their time. Everything that they did had a law attached to it. It was all out of a religious response. They went through the Old Testament with a magnifying glass and boiled down the law of Moses to 613 direct commands. It's a lot of things to remember. 613, and they called it the law. If you wanted to be godly, they thought, then you must obey all 613 of these commands. Going all the way down to keeping your hands clean by ceremonial ritualistic hand washing. They prayed and they fasted and they tithed everything. As a matter of fact, if they were to prepare a meal, they'd go out in their garden and whatever they picked out, they would snap off 10% of it, bag it up and give it to the church as a tithe. They would probably look at this Healthy and Free series and think, faith, fitness, family, finances, food, check, 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 and an additional check because of how awesome I am. You couldn't beat how committed to God they were, or so they thought. Because Jesus said you could. Listen to an interaction recorded in Luke 11 between Jesus and the Pharisees. When Jesus finished the talk, a Pharisee asked him to dinner. He entered his house and sat right down at the table. The, the Pharisee was shocked and somewhat offended when he saw that Jesus didn't wash up before the meal. But Jesus said to him, I know you Pharisees shine the surface of your cups and plates so they sparkle in the sun, but I also know your insides are maggoty with greed and secret evil. Stupid Pharisees, didn't the one who made the outside also make the inside? Turn both your pockets and your hearts inside out and give generously to the poor. Then your lives will be clean, not just your dishes and your hands. I've had it with you. You're hopeless, you Pharisees, frauds. Keep meticulous account books, tithing on every nickel and dime you get, but manage to find loopholes for getting around basic matters of justice and God's love. Careful bookkeeping is commendable, but the basics are required. You're hopeless, you Pharisees, frauds. You love sitting at the head table at church dinners, love grooming yourself in the radiance of public flattery, frauds. You're just like unmarked graves. People walk over that nice grassy surface never suspecting the rot and corruption that is six feet under. This is my favorite part right here. This guy doesn't have a name, but if it was, it would be Captain Obvious. One of the religious scholars spoke up. Teacher, do you realize that in saying these things, you're insulting us? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> he said yes, and I could be even more explicit. You're hopeless. You're religion scholars. You load people down with rules and regulation, nearly breaking their backs, but never lift a finger to help. Ouch. <laughs> Do you see why Jesus was so harsh with these religious people of his time? The Pharisees were so caught up in religion that they forgot about God's will to help people, to help the poor, to promote justice, to be servants. And they truly forgot what loving God should look like. When our perfect performance on the outside becomes more important than our love on the inside, we've missed a mark. We've become more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. So Jesus' time on earth 
was marked by helping others, by doing good, by taking care of people's needs. So then why isn't that more reflected in our Christian communities today? I mean, what should our stamp on the world look like as Christians? What should our imprint on society be? Should it be our words about what we are against? Or should it be our actions about what we are for? Now, it's easy to say that you are against something. I'm against the WSU Cougars. That's a true statement. (laughs) It's easy to say that you're against something. But it's tough to find ways to effectively reach out to someone who's trapped in a self-destructive lifestyle. It's not difficult to be against drug and alcohol abuse. However, it's tough to help those who turn to these substances to escape from their horrible realities of their lives. It takes courage and patience and time to help these people find hope. It's much easier to say you're against gambling and welfare abuse than it is to find ways to help people whose lives are destroyed by poverty. It's not too hard to be against abortion or say you're against abortion, but it's difficult to be truly pro-life. If no abortions had been performed in the last 20 plus years, how many Christians would be in the front of the line willing to adopt one or two children that were unwanted by their parents? If you really want to take James seriously, you can't just say that you're against something. The Christian model calls us to something more than that. Calls us to live out right actions with a Christ-like character, with a Christ-like heart. And I think it's defined in the word love. Jesus gave us an example of this in a story that he told about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man was beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Before long, a priest came by and saw this man was bruised, bloodied on the side of the road. But there was temple worship to be done, and this priest had an appointment to meet, and he realized that he could walk by this traveler without breaking any of the 613 direct commands. But if he helped the injured traveler, he would become ritually unclean and not be able to participate in this temple worship. So, turned his head and walked on by. Next was a Levite to pass. He was in a hurry to get to worship also. And if he helped, he would not make it to the worship service on time. This guy was concerned about getting to church on time. More than some of you. I won't name names. The third, the third who walked by was a Samaritan. And I think if... If Jesus told this story in present day, he would use a criminal, a drug addict, or a gangbanger, something to that degree. To the Jews who Jesus was speaking to, a Samaritan was a nobody, or even more than that, it was a somebody who was to be avoided. But to the injured man on the side of the road that day, this Samaritan was a servant and a savior. He cleaned up the crime victim took him to a holiday inn and got him checked in, got him food, even came back the next day to check on him. The point that Jesus was making as he told this story was the person who was obedient to God in this scenario weren't those two that were really in a hurry to get to church on time, 
The one who was the most obedient to God was the one who understood the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we may have our house in order. You know, we may be tithing. We may be in a community group. We may even have an additional Bible study that we go to on top of that community group. We may eat healthy. We may have a workout schedule. We may have a great relationship with our spouse and with our children. But we can still be in sin if we neglect the opportunities to be right to those people in need around us. When we don't do something that is right or to serve or to help, we commit what we call the sin of omission. And this morning we've talked heavily on what this sin of omission is, what the concept The general premise, I think, is established. It's not just saying no to specific things, but saying yes to the right things, which is to hurting people. But let me point out this morning four specific sins of omission that I've become aware of that I want to pass on to you. Ones that are necessary to avoid. The first sin of omission we must avoid is to know of needs without helping The story of the Good Samaritan is a challenge for all of us to help out when we recognize a need. Now, I realize that we live in a world with a lot of needs and needy people. We can't help everyone all the time, but I also think and I know that we could do more than we currently do. Often we excuse ourselves from helping because it's not easy for us or it's inconvenient it could be uncomfortable and frequently helping someone could become time consuming and possibly painful to us but if we know of needs around us and are unwilling to help in some way we find ourselves in the same shoes of the priest and the levite turning our back to the hurting victim paul said in ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship, that we are God's hands and feet, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. When your eyes become fixed on a need around you and you recognize it, then help. More than likely, God has put you in that specific scenario and allowed you to become aware of that situation because he wants you to help in it. He wants to work through you to bless and help that person. I think of different people in our church that have thought about this, that they have recognized a need either in our community or in our world and have decided to help. Uh, Those of you who serve down at the Tacoma Rescue Mission and provide meals, but more than that, provide a relationship and a shoulder and an ear and a voice for those hurting people. I think of those in, involved in YFC Youth for Christ or other adoption organizations, being there for families, being there for children. And even on a grander scale, those who, who have done short-term missions or North and Amanda and Wycliffe Bible Associates as they prepare to go to a foreign country to develop written Bible in someone's native tongue. How important that is. They've recognized the need and the responding to that. The second sin of omission that we must avoid is to have abilities without serving. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the fact that each and every one of us have been given gifts, talents, and abilities 
to enhance the kingdom of God for the benefit of everyone. As he discusses these abilities, he makes a very important statement that I think we all need to understand. Verse 7, he writes, Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone, that would be everyone, gets in on it. Everyone benefits. That we are created in God's image, and he has poured himself out into each and every one of us, and all of us have been given gifts, talents, and abilities to benefit everyone, to benefit Canyon Ridge Church, to benefit Tacoma and Puyallup, to benefit the world through our gifts, talents, and abilities. Now, I recognize that sometimes serving cannot be fun. I've been there. I understand it. When I interned here, I had to scrub the toilets. I had to vacuum the entire church. And it gets monotonous and time-consuming. Right, Maggie? Right, yeah. It, it's, it's not fun sometimes. I've been involved in children's ministry, and I've been thrown up on. That's not fun. When, after Hurricane Katrina, a group of us went down to serve in New Orleans and help the people clean up their homes and be able to move back into them. So about eight months after the hurricane and the water subsided, a team of us went down, and our job was mostly just to gut, to take everything, appliances, all the stuff that had been ruined, out of the homes. And my job was to remove the refrigerators, me and some other stronger guys. And imagine this. The water came in. The refrigerator opened. Some of the seawater got in with the food. The refrigerator closed. Eight months went by, and it's been 100 degrees. Now imagine taking that refrigerator down the stairs and having it accidentally open on you. Think of the sludge and the smell, and you could taste the smell. I understand that serving cannot be fun sometimes. But when we do it, people see the love of Christ. People benefit. Everyone benefits when we're willing. Some people say, I don't have any talents or gifts. I'll tell you two of my favorite talents and gifts that people have. Willingness and availability. You could get really far with those two things. It just takes willingness and availability. I've heard all sorts of excuses. Uh, ones like, I'm not a leader, and it's okay if you're not a leader because we're called to be servants, right? I've heard things like, I have a hard time waking up on time, or I have a, I have a hard time keeping my schedule, or this is a popular one, someone else will do it, right? Someone else will do it. But as you offer these excuses aloud, or even in your mind right now as I'm talking that everyone should be serving, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this the attitude that God deserves from me? That coffee's cold now. If you're avoiding using these gifts for service, or if you have an ability to do something and you don't, then you're committing the sin of omission. The third is to know Jesus without sharing him. Do you know someone who needs Jesus? Do you know someone who used to go to church but has since left and maybe years have gone by and it leaves a bad taste in their mouth? Often the Holy Spirit nudges us to say something about our faith with people and we ignore him because we don't want to or we're afraid to or we feel like we don't know how. But I think what we need to recognize 
is that our fear is only there because we fail to see that just as God has prepared us with a story and the knowledge to share with this person, so has he prepared this person to listen, to hear, to respond. God has given us a message, and God has given them the ability to listen and to hear it. The Holy Spirit is working in that person's life. Now, yes, there's better ways to share our faith than other. The street corner idea is probably bad. It's better to share out of a personal relationship. But the principle remains that when the Holy Spirit nudges us to share, we should respond to Him. And the fourth and the last one is to hear the good news about Jesus without responding. This is kind of the second half of number three. And I think this is the ultimate sin of omission for people, to know the good news about Jesus and to refuse to respond to the relationship that he has afforded us, that he has blessed us with. Refuse to obey. And in, in denying the good news about Jesus, we welcome ourselves to a life of eternal suffering, of a life without purpose. The author of Hebrews, I think, wrote it the best when he wrote, Do you think we can risk neglecting this magnific- magnificent salvation? And I think no. I think the pretty obvious answer is no. We shouldn't risk it. We shouldn't risk a life separated from a God who loves us, who is for us, who has a plan to benefit us. Now as I think about this, this truth that we've talked about this morning, and in my preparation this week, uh, I'm just overwhelmed of my own sin in this area, of areas where I have seen or have known what I should have done or have been urged by the Holy Spirit to do and haven't done it myself. And when I think you come to, to realize that sin includes knowing the good things that we should be doing and not doing them, it can be tough. I mean, the weight of that guilt can be crushing and overwhelming for us. If sin separates us from God and every time I don't respond to his will for my life or to help someone in need, that is sin. I feel like, what hope can there be, right? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. The great news about Jesus. The great news about Jesus. There is always hope. Just as Jesus died to establish, to enable a relationship between us and God, to make that possible, his death and resurrection has also allowed us the forgiveness to keep that relationship going was the purpose for all sin that Jesus died and rose again. Instead of paralyzing us to be afraid from moving forward in our lives, understand the complete nature that God's love accomplished, freeing us from this burden of sin and to move forward toward healthy living and serving others. And in this freedom, this is my hope this morning, that in this freedom, We may not only just focus on becoming healthy people ourselves, but in that platform of health, bless other people by saying yes to the opportunities that are around us.